Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Hoping to reduce the spread of COVID-19 in certain New York City, Broome County, and Lower Hudson Valley hotspots, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo this week announced an initiative that implements zones. The color-coded system essentially amounts to containment zones with new rules and restrictions in each. The Orange and Rockland County executives say they fully support the new effort. The Legislative Gazette's Allison Dunn reports. Governor Cuomo, a Democrat, announced a so-called cluster action initiative to address COVID-19 hotspots. Red, orange, and yellow zones will carry differing rules, with red being the most stringent and in the heart of the cluster. He says the new rules will be in effect for a minimum of two weeks. Orange County, we have an intense cluster, and then what we call a precautionary zone around that cluster. Rockland County, same thing. We have an intense cluster, and then we're establishing a precautionary zone around that cluster. The clusters in Orange and Rockland counties are predominantly Orthodox Jewish communities. Republican Rockland County Executive Ed Day took to Facebook Tuesday evening to update the public. Today I think was a watershed event in many ways as it relates to the battle against COVID. So I have, I have a good feeling about this um, and we will do our part here in Rockland. I know our towns and our villages will do the same and as will our school systems, our religious leaders of all faiths because they could, many could be affected, not just from one faith. In an issue that has also come up in New York City, Day had pushed back on defining clusters as zip codes, saying this unfairly lumped in sections of the zip code that were not negatively impacted. The governor was very adamant that he said that the, he does not want to do the zip code uh, approach. He, he actually said the zip code approach is stupid. He attributed it to another politician, but I won't embarrass him by saying who it was. But um, they're using the actual data. Day outlines the red zone in Rockland. I will tell you the red zones right now are within the town of Ramapo, predominantly in the zip codes of 10952, 10977. Exactly where you see on dashboard now is basically is basically where the red zone and the accompanying orange and yellow zones will be with fine tuning. Republican Orange County Executive Steve Newhouse also updated residents on Facebook late Tuesday. The town of Palm Tree and the village of Curious Joel within are hotspots within a Monroe zip code. Newhouse also opposed lumping all communities in a cluster via zip code. But uh, in particular, I had a lot of businesses in the town of Monroe, restaurants and stores that just didn't want to get penalized for being in the 10950. So uh, I have to say I had a great conversation with the governor today. He understood what we were talking about, and he has now uh, changed his philosophy or, or has, has actually agreed with us on this, that the town of Palm Tree will be in the red zone because of the numbers, and uh, some areas outside of it will be in the yellow zone, like North Main, as well as, well as uh, Scunny Monk Road. The red zone contains the cluster itself and carries the most stringent rules. Houses of worship are limited to 25% capacity, 10 people maximum, mass gatherings are prohibited, only essential businesses are open, 
dining is takeout only, and schools are on remote learning. The rules loosen a bit in an orange or warning zone, and even more in a yellow or precautionary zone. Day addresses enforcement. Uh, you know, again, what we have here is we have here um, uh, a logical approach right now, and frankly, it's a necessary approach right now. So for those of you who've been asking repeatedly what is going to be done to enforce this, the enforcement is, is now here, okay? Um, the um, state police will be overseeing the enforcement at the governor's direction. Newhouse calls the cluster action initiative a good step. I think it's a good thing. It's what I think we've all been fighting for for the last five days. And working together is obviously the best solution in this case. In addition to that, I talked to the uh, mayor of New York City, uh, Mayor de Blasio. He's got a similar situation. Uh, uh, the county of uh, Rockland, town of Ramapo, similar situation. I was on the call today with Ed Day as well. So uh, all of us are working together, which is a good sign in my, in my opinion. I want everybody to take a deep breath. Don't, uh, I, I got a lot of calls from around the county. Am I gonna get shut down? Are we gonna go back to the phases? No, uh, we, I think we all know where the issue is right now. As long as we all do our part, uh, we will be in good shape. So again, deep breath. Cuomo says he spoke with Orthodox Jewish community leaders Tuesday and asked for their cooperation in following the new rules. He says this was positively received. But there was some backlash from the Orthodox Jewish community, both in public statements and demonstrations in New York City. Cuomo says enforcement of the zones will go into effect by Friday. Cuomo also announced that fines for the sponsors of mass gatherings in violation of state public health rules will be increased to $15,000. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Allison Dunn. Former New York State Senate Majority Leader Joe Bruno has died at the age of 91 after a battle with cancer. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt takes a look at the life and legacy of the senator, who survived two corruption trials and several bouts of cancer. Joe Bruno, a colorful, larger-than-life character who once rode his own horse into the venue where state capitol reporters were presenting their annual gridiron show, was leader of the Republican-dominated state Senate from 1994 to 2008. Bruno is known for his ability to bring money, millions of dollars, and major economic projects to his district. A stadium in Troy is named for him, among other enterprises that bear his name. Governor Andrew Cuomo, whose father, the late Mario Cuomo, was governor when Bruno was a state senator, offered condolences. He was a honorable, respectful, sincere public servant who truly believed what he believed and worked very hard at it. Bruno was one of the so-called three-men-in-a-room leaders, along with the assembly speaker and governor, who controlled most of the major decisions in state government. Here's Bruno speaking in 2007, during a particularly bad budget fight with then-governor Elliot Spitzer, a Democrat. Letting them just roll over us and dictate to, it, to us would be the wrong thing. That's not democracy. That's not representative government. It's not fun, presently. I'd rather be getting along. Spitzer later left office in a prostitution scandal. But Bruno could also be bipartisan in what was a different era. 
The son of Italian immigrants, he grew up poor in Glens Falls, was a boxer and Korean War veteran, and he ran a phone company before being elected to the state Senate in 1976. He won the leadership of the Senate in what became known as the Thanksgiving coup, when Bruno formed an alliance with newly elected Governor George Pataki and secretly garnered enough votes from his Senate GOP colleagues to depose then-Senate leader Ralph Marino. Pataki, in a statement, says he's deeply saddened by Bruno's passing. Bruno later formed an alliance with former Assembly Speaker Sheldon Silver, a Democrat, against Republican Pataki when his interests coincided with the Democratic Speaker. Together, they overrode a number of the governor's vetoes. And after initially sparring with the powerful health care workers union, SEIU 1199, over proposed budget cuts, Bruno and then 1199 President Dennis Rivera became friends and even had nearby vacation homes in Puerto Rico. In a statement, Rivera and Greater New York Hospital Association President Ken Rasky called Bruno a passionate defender of New York's hospitals and their workers and a wonderful friend who will be sorely missed. Senator Jim Tedisco, a Republican from the Schenectady area, was Assembly Minority Leader during part of Bruno's tenure as Senate leader. Tedisco says he also considered Bruno to be a friend, and the two former athletes, Tedisco played basketball, often exercised together. I was to kid him that uh, when we'd run, we'd talk about our lives and everything like that. I said, well, I don't know if I really believe that you are a boxer, because uh, when you're a boxer, you have to get hit, and you're the most handsomest guy even the governor calls you the most handsomest legislator in the nation. You know, how could you never get hit? He said, uh, I was a great defensor. He goes, uh, I dodged a lot. And uh, I said, well, you're doing a lot of that right now, uh, working with the characters out here. Bruno left public office in 2008, just before he was indicted on public corruption charges. He was tried twice and in the first trial convicted of two of nine charges against him. The conviction was overturned on appeal. A second trial on the remaining two charges ended in acquittal. The trials revealed that Bruno and his aides frequently mixed the senator's political and personal business interests. In his later years, Bruno, a widower, was the companion of Kay Stafford, the wife of the late North Country State Senator Ron Stafford. He leaves behind four children, several grandchildren, and a great-grandchild. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York state government, politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. Alan? Governor Andrew Cuomo continues to get more and more upset about the hot spots that are happening in New York. We're talking about largely downstate. We're seeing, among other things, religious groups having gatherings, not doing the proper social distancing and masking, and some hot spots have broken out. We know that this is not only happening in New York, but around the country. We're seeing places rise and hot spots break out. The governor is now taking steps to close the schools there and put even more strict limitations in place, and there's been some pushback on that. You bet there's pushback. Look, uh, I want to tell you a couple of things about Andrew Cuomo. I've interviewed him many times. I've had my differences with him, which he's as quick to point out. Nevertheless, he is very, very brave. 
He's doing what he needs to do to protect people. And you know what, David? He's going to do what is right as opposed to what is political. It is not political to alienate a whole group of Jewish voters in a particular part of the city who often, but not always, vote monolithically. And, you know, you risk losing that catch of voters if you don't watch what you're doing. And the lesser politicians don't care about what's right. They care about what's political, what will get them votes. He's doing what's right. And, you know, he's got a new book coming out about his approach to all of this. It's all very interesting. Nevertheless, he is doing what is right. I can't emphasize that enough. I can't say it enough times because we know if you don't wear a mask and we know if you super congregate and we know if too many people are in a building, the chances are going to go up that you're going to get this disease. You know, when history is written, he will be seen as a guy who had guts. Meantime, we're seeing many, many small businesses close as a result of not being able to afford it after the pandemic hit. We're seeing layoffs from schools around the state as a result of potential for 20% cut to the budgets there. Now Cuomo says he will not make any changes to the state's finances until there's a result in this year's election. I'm not going to do any damage to the state's economy until you tell me that is the last resort. Cuomo said he's banking on at least one of two possible outcomes, Alan. In November, that former Vice President Joseph Biden wins the presidency or that Democrats take control of the U.S. Senate and maintain control of the House. But again, despite not wanting to cause pain, places are already taking steps assuming there will be pain. Well, David, I don't think they have any choice. If they are getting up to 20% less money to run a school, you know, it has to come out some way. And I suspect the way that that's going to happen is when they start to fire teachers and they start to cut back on the way in which a school, for example, uh, is custodialized. And I mean that in terms of custodians, you know, at a time when the way that a school is cleaned is everything. And they're the unseen things. They're the social workers who work in schools who have to um, take care of kids who are in deep, deep need. Well, often those are the people who are considered to be, you know, low-hanging fruit. It's just wrong. We need these people, and the governor is limited in what he can do. He has said from the first day, I'm not going to concede this. We need the money from the federal government, and they have to give it to us. It's clear that Trump isn't going to give it to him. There are 20 senators, Republican senators, who are saying, under no circumstances, we are told. So he has to wait till the election. If the Democrats take the Senate and keep the House and elect a Democratic president, it's obvious that the funds Cuomo needs will eventually, but not right away, be forthcoming. In the meantime, he doesn't miss a beat. He's not conceding, but less money is going to the schools and to other agencies of government. Finally, Alan, I want to just get your thoughts on the passing of Joe Bruno, an icon in this region, the, of course, majority leader of the state Senate from 1994 to 2008. You often remark that if he got one more thing for that district, it would sink. Well, that's true. He did that when he was convicted, which was reversed, of selling a horse at an inflated price. I remember I asked that we put Stubby K, I think it was, singing um I got this horse right here, da, 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 da. but I liked him. He may have been a bit of a scoundrel, who knows, but, you know, he wasn't convicted, and I used to talk to him, and he was a pleasant fellow. He was all about politics. He knew what he was doing. 
Did I think he was right? No. Did I think he was a little too close to Alphonse tomorrow? Absolutely. Nevertheless, even scoundrels can be uh, fun. It really was a time when the Republican Party had a heck of a lot more power than it does now. Well, that's right, and that's what he did. He was the leader of the Senate, and he used that power to his own advantage. Legislative Gazette political observer, Alan Shartok. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gistina. The idea of a state-run program modeled on the New Deal era works progress administration that would create jobs for unemployed and underemployed residents to stimulate the economy is catching on in some quarters. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas explains. At the beginning of summer, 109th District New York State Assemblywoman Pat Fahey and fellow Democrat Senator Rachel May of the 53rd District borrowed a page from FDR's playbook, looking to create a Works Progress Administration. Fahey says it would be a short-term public jobs and works program to put unemployed New Yorkers back to work, specifically targeting low-income, low-wage workers, youth, again, the millennials and younger, as well as people of color. According to Fahey's office, roughly $92 billion in today's dollars was invested in infrastructure and cultural projects in the 1930s. At its peak, the WPA employed nearly 3 million people. Senator May says the impact is still felt today in parks, infrastructure, and art. If we have a new WPA, it will employ people the same way in meaningful jobs of lasting value. As in the 1930s, we have to marshal government resources to boost employment. And this bill can position us to do it strategically. In July, Massachusetts State Senator Jamie Eldridge and Representative Dan Cena, also Democrats, filed an act to establish the Massachusetts Works Progress Administration program with the same intent to prioritize communities disproportionately affected by unemployment. Fahey and May have now joined forces with their Massachusetts counterparts, hoping to boost popular support. We couldn't be more thrilled with this new partnership that we're hoping to grow quickly. Eldridge says as a result of the pandemic, record-breaking numbers of Massachusetts and New York residents applied for unemployment insurance, driving unemployment rates up to record levels. Right now, state legislators need to be bold. Um, we're, it's looking like the federal, the next round of federal stimulus will not happen. Um, and so we need to take leadership at the state level. Cena says the Massachusetts WPA bill has four components. One of them would be to create jobs. The second would be to require uh, skills that uh, are available for those individuals. The third would be continuing environmental and economic benefit from the project after it's finished. And the fourth, that it can be staffed with, with minimum delay. Joe Kreisberg is president of the Massachusetts Association of Community Development Corporations. It's always a little bit of seeing the opportunity within the crisis. If the federal government comes to the rescue, that'd be great. Um, but we're going to have to have both federal and state programs and initiatives. Fahey envisions the New York WPA as part of a multi-pronged solution to multi-pronged problems. 
including the COVID economic upheaval, social unrest, and unemployment. Fahey says the bill is in committee. Eldridge's office says the language of the Massachusetts version is being fine-tuned. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. A bill aimed at improving safety in the thoroughbred horse racing industry recently passed the U.S. House of Representatives and now heads to the Senate. More from the Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard. The bill, co-sponsored by Republican Andy Barr of Kentucky, cleared the House. Tonko, who represents Saratoga Springs, home of Saratoga Racecourse, says the health of the equine athlete is at the heart of the bill. I think this is a major step forward um, at a time when the industry really needs to be bolstered. The bill would create a uniform set of safety standards across the 38 states that host horse racing. The New York Racing Association, which operates racetracks at Saratoga, Aqueduct, and Belmont, is supportive of the legislation. Pat McKenna is Naira's spokesman. And Naira urges the U.S. Senate to quickly consider and pass the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Act to secure the future of the sport. In a normal year, McKenna says New York's racing industry supports 19,000 jobs and $3 billion in annual economic impact, $240 million to the capital region. While the stands were empty, a Saratoga meet was still held at the spa this summer. McKenna says Naira is interested in continuing the conversation around the legislation's creation of an independent authority that will determine medication and safety standards for horses. We'll certainly look to have a seat at the table during those conversations because nowhere is racing more important than right here in New York State. The bill has not enjoyed universal approval among the horse racing industry. In January, the National Horsemen's Benevolent and Protective Association released a video criticizing the bill and its banning of race day medications. Much of the argument in the industry has centered around an anti-bleeding drug commonly known as Lasix. National HBPA CEO Eric Hemmelbeck speaks in the video posted on YouTube. We're proud to say thoroughbred racing is a very clean industry. Performance-enhancing drugs are not tolerated, period. And we support swift, severe penalties for violations. But there are prominent voices within our industry that want to, without scientific evidence, outlaw race day Lasix, a therapeutic which prevents injuries. Critics say the drug allows horses to run more often and through pain leading to injury. Taco says he's proud of the passage of the bill, a version of which was first introduced in 2015. The Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Act heads to the Senate, where Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is introducing the bill. The Kentucky Republican and powerful racing company Churchill Downs signaled their support of the bill just before this year's Kentucky Derby. Again, Tonko. I think it's a, a very strong move forward. It's been a long-fought battle. It reminds me of how many years it takes to get some things done. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. A discussion hosted by Empire Report and AARP New York this week discussed the need for universal broadband access in the state and passage of a bill in the state legislature aimed at gathering data that will help pinpoint rural and urban areas lacking the service. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley reports. 
The Comprehensive Broadband Connectivity Act has passed the State Assembly and Senate. The bill requires the Public Service Commission to review available technology in order to find delivery solutions to underserved or unserved areas and publish a detailed Internet access map of the state. AARP New York Associate State Director of Advocacy Kevin Jones says access to broadband is an urgent issue and the full study and report in the bill is warranted and needed. We're urging the governor to sign Senate 8805 Assembly 6679, a bill that's passed both houses of the legislature just one vote shy of unanimously, that requires the Public Service Commission to review and expand high-speed internet and fiber optic services. Public Utility Law Project Executive Director Richard Berkeley says the state measure is crucial for broadband expansion because the Federal Communications Commission does not collect such data. The kind of data that the PSC could collect is the kind of data that's vital for economic development, it's vital for education, it's vital for telehealth, and quite honestly, it's it's vital for keeping us connected. In 2015, the new New York broadband program was created to invest $500 million in broadband expansion to all areas of the state. Communications Workers of America Northeast Legislative and Political Director Bob Master said there remain two obstacles to access. The limits to build out. So our employer, Verizon, uh, made a decision, which no one could challenge from a regulatory perspective, that it wasn't profitable enough to build out a high-speed broadband to the upstate cities or to rural areas. They simply did not see that they would make enough money uh, doing that. And then in a place like New York City, you have a very serious affordability uh, crisis. So these two things have historically been beyond the reach of regulators. And there's very little in the way of price regulation. So those are the two fundamental problems. And so we have tens of millions of Americans uh, who are left, you know, holding the short end of the stick when it comes to broadband, in contrast to countries all across the world. Master added the past six months have exposed the critical need for universal access to high-speed Internet. The pandemic revealed uh, how vital access to high-speed Internet is, especially school children, but the elderly, people in need of health services, people in need of uh, alternate forms of entertainment because, you know, we can no longer go out and go to the museum or go to the movies, whatever it is. And so, you know, broadband is clearly... Uh, now understood to be a, a genuine utility, something that people are absolutely dependent on. Audio is courtesy of Empire Report New York. The video on expanding access to affordable high-speed internet in New York can be viewed at wamc.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2041. Or just listen or podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustinov. <laughs>